Hi, this is Dr. Mercola, and I'm here in Bismarck, North Dakota, on location with the regenerative agriculture pioneer, Gabe Brown, who actually uh, started this a few decades ago in the last century and uh, purchased a farm from his, his wife's uh, parents, his in-laws, and uh, has really developed the expertise in helping people understand how to build soil and why is it important because obviously if you don't have healthy soil, you <clears throat> healthy organisms growing in that, you can't create nutrient-dense food. And the challenge, the big challenge is that conventional agriculture has literally decimated the topsoil uh, because of these practices, which includes uh, tilling and uh, the use of synthetic fertilizers that are destroying the microbial life. So we're, the projections I gave you can expand on this is I think within one or two generations, we're gonna lose the most of our topsoil, and then what's gonna happen? Because hydroponics doesn't cut it. Uh, so, uh, Gabe is, the reason he's a pioneer is because he's, he's done it, he teaches people all over the world, I think he was telling me he just traveled 140 times this year alone, and this is only like July. So, uh, so he's, he has the real world practical experience in how to implement this. So. Why don't you uh, share your journey with us and help people understand this process and some of the challenges that we're facing. Well, thank you, Dr. McCall. It's a real pleasure to have you here in North Dakota. Uh, a little bit about myself and how this operation started. It was founded by my in-laws, as you said, in 1956, and they farmed it conventionally. Tillage, synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, fungicides, etc. From 1956 till 1991, when my wife and I purchased it from them. And I had moved on here uh, in 1983. My wife and I moved on here and ran the livestock while they grain farmed. Then we started farming also. And I started farming conventionally. I learned agriculture from my father-in-law because I grew up in town. I'm from the city. I wasn't born and raised on a, on a farm or ranch. So I learned those conventional techniques tillage and fertilizers, pesticides, etc. What happened to us then, in 1991, we bought the operation from them and I was farming conventionally. Then in 1993, I had a good friend of mine who was a no-tiller. No-tilling was just starting here in the Northern Plains and, and he convinced me to go no-till to save time and moisture. But he said, Gabe, I'm gonna give you some advice. If you're gonna go no-till, sell all your tillage equipment then you'll never be tempted to go back. And I did that. At that time, I couldn't afford a no-till drill unless I sold the tillage equipment. So we went no-till in 94. So the, the land you're gonna look at here today has not had any steel ran through it since 1993. So we've been long-term no-till. Well, what happened to us in our story was in 1995, we, my father-in-law primarily grew spring wheat, oats, and barley. So small grains. Well, I started to diversify. You know, there's approximately 32,000 tons of atmospheric nitrogen above every acre. All we have to do as producers is to plant legumes, inoculate it with the rhizobia, and it'll take that nitrogen and convert it, in other words, make it available to the plants. So I started growing peas and some clovers, alfalfa, in order to do that. Well, we still had 1,200 acres of spring wheat in in 95. The day before I was gonna start combining, I lost 100% of that crop to hail. Hailstorm came, took it all. I had no insurance because it just didn't hail here very often. Well, that was pretty devastating. 1996 came along and I started planting corn. I started planting a species like triticale and vetch and, and trying to diversify the rotation a little bit. 
Unfortunately, we lost 100% of our crop to hail again. So that was two years in a row, but think of what was happening. I was moving into no-till, and I had all these crops decimated by hail, but all that crop residue was left on the soil surface. Well, I started noticing earthworms showing up. I started to notice the soil felt a little better, and it, moisture was starting to infiltrate. We were fortunate in 91 when we bought this place that we had some baseline soils work done, and they found that we could only infiltrate a half of an inch of rainfall per hour. In other words, if it rained an inch, half of it ran off. We weren't infiltrating it. Organic matter levels on the cropland were 1.7 to 1.9%. Now, historically speaking, soil scientists tell us it should be in the 7 to 8% range. So in other words, three quarters of the carbon in the soil had been lost due to farming methods. Well, we noticed this starting to change and we were getting an improvement. 1997 rolls around and we dried out. It was a major drought that year. It was probably pretty similar to this year. And we were, weren't able to harvest any cash crops. So three years with no crop income, my wife and I took off farm jobs and we were just trying to keep the banker at bay, you know? Well, I started, okay, I need feed for the livestock. So I started planting crops like uh, cowpeas and sorghum sedan grass and letting the livestock graze them because I just couldn't afford to put up the hay. I couldn't afford the fuel and the twine and everything else. 1998 came along and we lost 80% of our crop tail. So four years in a row, no crop income. It was hell to go through, but I tell people, best thing that could have happened to me because that got me moved down the path of regenerative agriculture. And due to the changes we saw in the soil, we started growing more of these, uh, what are known today as cover crops. Back then, I just thought of it as livestock feed. But we realized that we truly can grow topsoil. So those same soils that back in 91 were 1.7 to 1.9% organic matter, today are in the 55 to 7% range in organic matter. Infiltration rates, where I used to only infiltrate a half of an inch per hour, we can now infiltrate an inch in nine seconds and the second inch in 16 seconds. We're in a 15 inch moisture environment here in Bismarck, North Dakota. Whatever moisture falls, I'm gonna be able to infiltrate and be used. And I really, since then, it's been a learning process over the past 20 years. How do healthy ecosystems function? And we've really studied that and learn that it's all these components together. We're to the place now on our operation where we no longer use any synthetic fertilizers. We don't use pesticides. We don't use any fungicides. We do occasionally, like in certain circumstances, we'll use a herbicide, but it's very selective. It's never why the crop is growing. It's always before it's growing. We do not use glyphosate. So it's only in a select situation because I refuse to till because tillage is so detrimental to the mycorrhizal fungi and soil biology. And now we're to the point where we have a healthy functioning soil ecosystem and it's able to provide the nutrients that those plants need. In turn then, it provides those nutrients not only to the plants, but to the animals and hopefully to us as people. That's great. <clears throat> so what are some of the biggest lessons you've learned in teaching this, these strategies to other farmers? Yeah. and? and helping to catalyze this really necessary transition if we're going to hope to recover our topsoil. That's a great question. One of the things I've learned, and I, I'm fortunate in that, I've had a lot of the, the top scientists in the world come visit my operation, and 
they have taught me things such as there really isn't a deficiency in phosphorus almost anywhere in the world where there's production agriculture. Mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Rick Haney at, down at, uh, in Texas at the ARS station there says that you cannot find a single peer-reviewed research paper that shows a positive benefit to a crop from phosphorus. So for years and years, us as producers are told you have to apply phosphorus. Our soils have plenty of phosphorus. The issue is it's not in the available form for the plants. Well, how do you get that into the available form? How do you convert it from organic to inorganic? Well, before we go there, I think it's best to give a little background <clears throat> as to why this surplus synthetic artificial phosphorus is being applied to, to, to uh, conventional agriculture farms, why it's so damaging to, to the environment and to us. Yeah, the, 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 the thing of it is, is you look at the current production model today. Through crop insurance, the federal farm program, it's based on yield. So producers have it bombarded into them that it's all about yield and we have to get more and more yield. And because they're enrolled in the current in the farm program, the payments they receive from the government are all based on yields. Mm -hmm. They can get what's called revenue insurance. So they can insure their crop for X amount of dollars based on their past yields. It has nothing to do with food. It has nothing to do with nutrients. It has nothing to do with over applying those synthetic nutrients. So they just shoot for yield. Now you have all of your big business, you know, the chemical and fertilizer companies telling them the only way to get this yield is with our improved stack trait genetic uh, hybrids and then the fertilizer, etc. that's needed on there, all these inputs, which is a total fallacy because that's not how ecosystems function. But when they apply this phosphorus to the soil and, yep. and, and trying to uh, implement those guidelines that are recommended to them, then it runs off, it's not incorporated into the plants and then why don't you discuss the, the consequences of this excess phosphorus to the environment? There's a lot of uh, research out there that proves that a very small amount, you know, they've taken radioactive isotopes and put it through this fertilizer and found very minute amounts actually goes into the plants the year it's applied. The rest of it goes out and is leached out through groundwater or over the surface, goes into the watershed, and then we have all these problems like in the Great Lakes, Gulf of Mexico, etc. You know, that's a problem for society and farmers aren't really bearing the responsibility, nor is the businesses that, that have sold them those goods, unfortunately. So it's causing a major catastrophe to our ecosystems, a large cost to the environment, small benefit to the producer. So one of the things we talk about, I try and teach and educate producers on, how do you hold those nutrients on your land? So that's where cover crops come into play. If I'm a producer, why would I want to apply these synthetics and then see it go down the watershed? You grow cover crops for a variety of reasons. One of them is to capture the nutrients that are there and hold them on your landscape. Mm -hmm. That's what's needed. The other thing those cover crops do then is they convert that organic form of these nutrients into inorganic and make it available to the plants via biology. So cover crops are a win-win situation. We're taking CO2 out of the atmosphere through photosynthesis. We're pumping out that carbon, liquid carbon I like to call it, where it exudates into the soil to feed biology. 
and it starts the whole nutrient cycling process. Well, there's one you left out, and I think it's a really crucial one, is you're capturing the energy that's falling on the land, and it's going onto a crop that's doing something useful with it as opposed to going on bare soil, which is killing the, 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 the life in the, in the, in the soil. That, that's, you're exactly right. You know, there's five basic principles to growing topsoil and building a healthy soil ecosystem. Number one is you have to have the least amount of disturbance possible. By that, I mean mechanical disturbance, tillage. I mean herbicides, pesticides, fungicides, the least amount of disturbance possible. And this is not just for commercial agriculture. This is for all you home gardeners out there. You don't have to till your soil. Exactly. It's, it's actually highly counterproductive and wasteful of your resources. And you're going to have lower nutrient density in your foods if you till. Yeah. So we want the least amount of disturbance possible. We want armor or protection on that soil surface. For the homeowners, that can be lawn clippings, leaves, can be wood chips. You know, for us uh, in production agriculture, it's crop residue, it's cover crop residue. Because or the cover crops themselves. The cover crops themselves, exactly, because we don't want to see bare soil. Mm -hmm. If you see bare soil, soil temperatures are rising, you're actually negatively affecting biology, you're negatively affecting the water cycle, you're losing more uh, nutrients into the atmosphere. That difference is pretty dramatic. If, you, if they measure with infrared, it could be 40, 50 degrees difference. Easily, easily. Yep. Just extreme. Easily. When soil temps are about 100 degrees, uh, you're going to start shutting that plant down. Very little of the moisture is going to go for growth. Well, you take here today, we're in the 90 degree range here, Soil temps on bare soil are going to be well over 100. Your plants aren't growing. If you have good armor residue on the soil surface, the temperature there can be in the 80 degree range. You know, easily 20 plus degrees difference. Those plants are growing. Huge difference production wise for the producer. The next principle is diversity. You have to have diversity. Now, so often in production agriculture today, you know, it's corn and soybeans or cotton and soybeans, you know, it's monocultures and not a lot of diversity. That's where cover crops fit in. They allow you to get diversity. For the homeowner, they can have cover crops in their garden and it will help improve the soil, it'll attract beneficial insects, it'll capture more sunlight, more energy, win-win-win situation. Next thing is you have to have a living root in the ground as long as possible. So often in production agriculture, a cash crop is harvested, there's nothing out there growing collecting sunlight, you know. We need to have something growing all the time. For the homeowners, the gardeners, they can grow cover crops also mm -hmm. when they're done harvesting their vegetables. And the fifth principle is we really need livestock integration and animal integration. And by that, I mean, it's not just beef cattle. You know, I'm talking about the insects also. Do you have flowering plants for all the pollinators and predator insects to, to ward off those pests, you know? But we need that integration. Where I'm at here in the Northern Plains, obviously hundreds of years ago, we had the large herds of bison and elk moving across the landscape, being pushed by the wolves, the predators. We're mimicking that today with our livestock on our operation. The grass-finished beef, the grass-finished lambs, the pastured pork, the free-range laying hens, they're all moving across the landscape, mimicking what was done hundreds of years ago. And in so doing, they're benefiting the resource but they're benefiting the people who consume them as well because it's a highly nutrient-dense product. And would you add the mycorrhizal fungi in there uh, and paying specific attention to make sure that's there? Because it's not, it's, 
I mean, it's, it does occur over time, but you can certainly accelerate the process and increase the likelihood that you'll have yeah. it. And, and explain what that is for those who aren't aware of it. Mycorrhizal fungi is a fungus that grows in healthy soils and it serves several purposes. It secretes a glue that's called glomalin. It's the sticky substance that starts the formation of soil particles. It holds the soil together so it's not lost to wind erosion, water erosion, etc. What mycorrhizal fungi do also is it transfers nutrients throughout the soil. It forms symbiotic relationships with the roots of multiple plants. That plant then secretes exudates out. The mycorrhizal fungi take that exudates and they feed biology. Then in turn, they take the nutrients from that biology and transfer it to the plants. There was some really good work done at New Mexico State University by Dr. David Johnson, where he determined what's the most critical thing in a plant's life early on. So he took nitrogen and phosphorus and potassium and organic matter and did these trials. What he found out, the most critical thing for a plant early on in its life is that relationship with mycorrhizal fungi. Now, what's done in production agriculture today that's a detriment to mycorrhizal fungi? Number one is tillage. Number two is your synthetics, whether it be fertilizer or pesticides or herbicides. We're doing those things in production agriculture. In other words, we're sending back the mycorrhizal fungi, which is the most important thing we need. It makes no sense. Yeah. We and need to rectify that. It is not obvious to some. The reason why the synthetics are an issue is because they are usually administered as salts, which yep. associate and it creates these massive uh, pH changes that really is d highly destructive to the microbial life in the soil. That's exactly right. And uh, what you can do is you can inoculate your soil with these mycorrhizal fungi. You can buy these spores and you can grow them up. So it can be relatively inexpensive because they're really easy to grow. It can too, it can. And you know, for those in the, uh, with gardens mm -hmm. in an urban setting, it's very easy to get this and to propagate this mycorrhizal fungi. For large-scale production agriculture, mm -hmm. it's easy to do in the fact that all we do have to do is pay attention to those core principles, reduce the tillage and all these different synthetic inputs. Mycorrhizal fungi will, will proliferate and... Just like the earthworms. Exactly. Build yes. it and they'll come. So uh, one of the other strategies is this cover crops, for at least for, for home gardeners. And I'm wondering if you could discuss the transition that occurs. So they've, they've harvested their crops and then they plant the cover crops. That's easy. But what's the transition from cover crops back to the garden? Yeah, that's a great question. And we don't want to till that garden. Right. You know, I, I can't understand the, any reason <laughs> for a garden to be tilled. So we will leave it there. And then you terminate the cover crop. Now, how do you terminate it? I've seen it terminated by people simply with their feet. I've seen them take a small barrel and roll it across the cover crop to kill it. You know, it has to be, that cover crop has to be starting to form a seed head mm -hmm. in order for that to work. But you can make these small crop rollers. Now they'll ask, can we cut it down and just leave it lay there? Yes, that is an option. It works better if it's, if it's rolled down or stepped down. But I've seen implements as simple as a two by four, uh, flat and then people have handles on it, you just step the cover crop down. It doesn't have to be anything large right, and so fancy. You, 
basically you uh, terminate the life of that cover crop. Right. But then you have the practical challenge of planting your seeds. Now, and, and when you have a commercial operation like you do, you've got the equipment to do that. Yep. The, but for those gardeners, how do they do that? It's amazing. Right now, there's a lot of equipment out there for small-scale gardeners that are no-till. Okay. But I tell people, if you have a small garden, it's as simply as going, taking a hoe, turning it upside down, and just parting it with the handle. Mm -hmm. Just move that cover crop aside and uh, make a little slit and plant your seeds. Now, for a transplant, obviously, you're just going to take the transplant right. and transplant. And then you, would you put the cover crop over to act as a mulch? All I would do is I would, I would gently cover it with a little soil. Okay. And the cover crop, you can put it right up. Just leave a small, narrow slit there where the plant's going to come through. And what you'll find, if you get good seed-soil contact, that vegetable plant or whatever you planted will come up through the cover crop. Okay. Yep. Yeah, great. As long as the mulch isn't isn't so. Yeah, because I mean, the, there's two strategies here. One is that the pioneer efforts you're doing to really encourage and catalyze the transformation of the commercial agriculture system in, in the U.S. and worldwide. But then, of course, there's a, the vast majority of people who that's important for them philosophically, but they're not growing. You know, they they're growing their own food. They're seeking to. You know, we're we're trying to inspire people to do that because World War. Was it one or two? Maybe both, where they had the victory gardens. Yeah. And a large percentage of the food grown in this country was, was from those victory gardens. So we can do it. I mean, it is just crazy that we have all this ornamental landscaping. I mean, lawns don't feed the country. I mean, it's just crazy to put that much time, effort, and energy to create a lawn. I've been basically, when I moved into the house where I live now, it was 100% ornamental, and it's probably it's about 10% now, maybe 15. Mm -hmm. and, and, and some ornamentals are good. I mean, we we're going to look at it in some of the your the land. You actually have pollinators, so you're you're not you know. The, I mean, I guess in your case, the the your animals can eat the, those, but the pollinators. But for for a commercial uh, for a residential gardener, the pollinators are, you're not going to be producing food, but they're going to attract the pollinators that that complete the cycle. That's good, right. It's a good thing to have some pollinators, but I agree totally with you. Homeowners should be producing their own food. I mean, you look at it, even if you just have a patio, it's amazing the amount of, of vegetables you can produce, even in that setting, just in pots. And why not do that? Yeah. You know, I, I'm going to show you our small uh, garden which produces enough vegetables for four families mm -hmm. for the entire year. You know, it doesn't and, take and a large area. It's in a space that many people watching this have yards that big. Oh, exactly. Yeah, so it's not like radically impossible for many people to implement. So yeah. you can easily, it feeds four families. You can basically feed yourself on your property. Oh, there's no doubt about yeah, that. Yeah, there's, you know, for those who don't, who, who rent or, Maybe you're a college student living in a dormitory. Well, you can grow sunflower seed sprouts, you know, or you can do a community garden, which are available in most communities. Yeah. So, you know, the, I think many people just get short-sighted or not really lack the innovation gene, or they lack the innovation gene and just don't think outside of the box that it's practical. I mean, it, and it's really, <clears throat> as uh, conditions in our economy tend to, there's a good chance they may decline radically over time. This is really good security for yourself and your family and your loved ones is to have a, have a strategy to, to create good nutrient-dense food that you have access to. 
Um, and and uh, on our household, for instance, we have enough canned goods to easily last 18 months. Easily. I, you know, I wouldn't have to buy any vegetables for 18 months. It's there. It's either frozen or preserved through canning. Yeah. And the term canning, you think of a mechanical can, but this, in your case, I'm sure it's, it's mason jars. Yeah, it's mason, mason jars. jars. Yeah. 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 So it's just for the clarification. For the okay. He's got no. all these cans from, no, Cos no. from Costco no, sitting in his shelves. No. All home raised. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, that's a, it's a good strategy. And yeah, that's, that's the way our country survived. I mean, prior to, you know, the, the 19th century or 20th century, well, 19th century, I think. It's interesting in that we get, we've had visitors here from 21 foreign countries and all 50 states mm -hmm. in the last five years. The number one thing I hear from visitors from overseas is they can't believe how poor the food is in the United States. Mm -hmm. They said there's no taste, there's no flavor. And what they really mean is there's no nutrient density. Mm -hmm. And they see that right away because Many uh, countries that I have visitors from, they're producing their own food in their own gardens. Yeah. And so those of you listening out there, if you grow your own food, you will notice the difference in taste right away. Yeah, so I'm uh, really excited to be here also because I'm learning lots of tips from you. I uh, just purchased the lot next door to me. I'm in the process of uh, re uh, developing that into a the optimized healthy growing environment for food so i live in florida so i've got pretty much more ideal growing conditions that you have here in, in, in hey florida. we're frost free 120 days <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah we're, we're, we're frost free for 365 i think but uh yeah so there and we're going to document this too but you've given me some really good ideas on how to really create this ideal environment obviously no to all the things you talked about Clearly no synthetics, no tilling, cover crops, which uh, the mycorrhizal fungi inoculation. So it's, I'm excited to see it take place. Yeah, I'm excited to see that. And it's, that's the thing that I get people from all over the world and they say, oh, it'll work in North Dakota, but it won't work here. But what they need to understand is those five principles I laid out work anywhere in the world where there's production agriculture. Because yeah. I'm simply following the template that nature put forth. So if you follow that template, you're going to succeed. Yeah, you're actually demonstrating in one of the harshest environments, at least in the continental United States. You know, yeah. I mean, there's it's harder. I mean, I guess you can go up in certain places in Alaska, but uh, for, for North Dakota, you're, you're definitely being challenged here. And, and you're doing well. So if yeah. you can do it here, everywhere else is pretty easy. Yeah. Well, here in June, we froze one morning, and 36 hours later, it was 98 degrees. <laughs> That's pretty significant extreme. And then, you know, the shortage of the water. I mean, there are obviously places that are drier, mm -hmm. but not many. You know, right. I mean, it's it, it, it's interesting with this small amount of water intake that you'd think it'd be more of a desert like you see. In, you go up into the mountains or certain places. Uh, but you, you just there's a lot of green out here. Yeah. And we're in one of the driest years yeah. recorded here. But it all goes back to a healthy, functioning soil ecosystem. That's what we need. And that's all about those principles. And we can grow topsoil, and in so doing, we can produce nutrient-dense food. I really appreciate all your time, effort, and energy, and your pioneering work, and, and taking time out of your busy schedule to help us document this, and hopefully inspire and catalyze more people to 
really integrate this into their lifestyle strategy. And if you, if you can't do it now, you can always plan ahead. I mean, you know, life is dynamic. It's, it's not static and you can change and you could have goals and you can implement this. And, uh, you know, it's, you know, I have actually implemented much of this in my life and, you know, growing a significant amount of the food that I consume. And it's, I can tell you, it's a very rewarding to do that. And, uh, you know, it get and it makes you a lot more self reliant, and not have to be concerned about uh, foods the stores running out of food. You've got yeah. it in your backyard. That's right. Yeah. Well, thank you, Dr. McCullough. It was a pleasure having you here. All right.